For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. A pretty heavy topic this morning. We're talking about facing death. So, is, so I find it kind of interesting that there's so many who have uh, found it a source of humor as well. That old um, comedian Groucho Marx used to say, I intend to live forever or die trying. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die, I just want to be there when it happens. Any Stephen Wright fans among us, just a really dry sense of humor, love that guy's humor. He's talking about how some people want to leave their bodies for science, he says in his deadpan way, when I die, I'm leaving my body to science fiction. I have no idea what that means, you know, but it's just, it just gets me every time. Rita Redner once joked, my grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands, <laughs> and two of them were just napping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, death is one of those muddled topics for us, isn't it? We may joke about it. We watch movies and television shows where the dead bodies may pile up by the score, and yet when death visits our home, it's always an unwelcome guest. The Bible calls death, uh, says that death has a power over us. It's true. It has a power over us because it, there's so much at stake. Can you imagine there's a more tragic experience than dying and waking up in eternity only to discover then that you lived your life all wrong, that all that you believed was wrong, all that you lived for was wrong. I remember I was like fifth and sixth grade being terrified by this thought that I might wake up after I've lived and, and the first person I see is Buddha and he looks at me and he says, why were you a Christian? Why did you believe this all your life? Why didn't you ask better questions? One of the reasons I'm a Christian is because I've thought about that moment 
and what it means. And I want to be on the right side of that answer. You don't get, it's not like baseball where you get three pitches to get another, to get, to get three strikes. No, you get one, just one. And when it's over, it's done. Decision made. Have you lived your life well? A lot at stake with death. It also has power over us because we can't stop it. Healthy habits may delay death, but they may not. And the reality is that it is inevitable and irresistible. The Bible calls death the last enemy to be defeated. The good news is death is defeated by God through Jesus Christ when he conquers death and the grave is empty on the third day. The harsh news is people who face death without Jesus discover death wins. God defeats death, but you and I don't. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 then tells us that people live as slaves to fear of death, uncertain about death. People find false comforts through minimization or denial. Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow die, we we die, or or, or quite frankly, foolish beliefs. Sometimes people will say, find comfort in, oh, saying death is a part of life. It's a natural part of life. No, it's not. God created this world for life. God created you for life. Death is unnatural. Death is a foreign invader into this life, which is why God sent his son Jesus to defeat it. Death is not some poetic, you know, device that is part of this, you know, circle of life. Death is not natural. And yet some how people find comfort in that stupid phrase, death is a natural part of life. Christ has defeated death. Hebrews 2 tells us that he's come to set free those who are slaves of the fear of death. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives us wisdom so we don't have to hunch our way forward. Wisdom so we can face death with confidence, not worldly foolishness or wishful thinking. Let's pray together. Please, Heavenly Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is in this place. I thank you that you give us your word. I thank you that you want to speak to each person today. I pray that you would give us wisdom and comfort, that you would prepare each of us, not only for our own personal experiences with death, but to help others as well. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I think the face death with confidence, the first thing you have to do is own your mortality, own your awareness that you're not made for this world. The Apostle Paul expresses for us two pictures of how we feel about this life. Verse 1, we are not made for this world. He says, for we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, We have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with human hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent. Anybody groaning this morning because of the imperfections of this world? I was groaning on Thursday when Arizona lost, and I just thought, oh. But last night I found comfort thinking some of you have Purdue winning. 
or Kansas. It's that in this world, we groan because we see how imperfect it is. The, uh, Paul here uses this expression, in this earthly tent. We groan because nobody wants to live in a tent. Even campers, even people that, oh, I like camping, don't like tents. You know, I mean, think about how many campers today live, actually camp in just regular old-fashioned tents. No, they like RVs that are about half the size of a city block that have running water and satellite dishes so you can watch your soap operas. Nobody likes a tent because it's temporary. On the other hand, if you're in a battle, if you're on a battlefield and you have a tent to be able to give you coverage, it's not a bad it's not a bad deal, but it's no place to call home. It's not a permanent dwelling. Paul says, God in heaven is preparing for us an eternal building that is solid and lasting. But in this tent, we realize it's insecure and temporary. That's why the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. Everything within you tells you you're uncomfortable with this world because you're uncomfortable with time. We don't like watching kids go f- grow so fast or parents grow old so fast or vacations going by so fast. Why? Because we're not made for time. We're made for timelessness. And this earthly tent we live in is going to be destroyed and as long as we're in it, we feel insecure. The second picture that Paul uses is that of nakedness. Verse two, indeed we groan in this tent desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we don't want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. While tent living reminds us of how temporary this life is and how we long for eternity and that which is solid, being unclothed reminds us how unsafe we feel, how vulnerable we feel. And there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves feel completely safe. Every car accident, every diagnosis with cancer, every terrorist attack, every climate alarmist is, a, is this world's way of reminding us you're not made for this world. You're not made for the unsafety of this world. You're made for security and safety in eternity in God's heavenly home. C.S. Lewis said, oh, and by, by the way, you're, you're saying, so, so what's the point? Here's the point. If you want to be excited about, if, if you want to be confident facing death, then be aware of your eternal longings and don't attach them to temporary things. Attaching eternal longings to temporary things always leaves you frustrated. Trying to feel secure in this world where you will never feel secure will just leave you frustrated. You want to anticipate heaven, then, 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 then um, attach your eternal longings to eternal things. Cecilus says like this, at present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. C.S. Lewis calls our eternal longings a nostalgia for a world that we're made for. Apparently then, 
our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of the door, which we've always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merit and also the healing of all, (laughs) healing of that old ache. One day there will be healing for your aches for perfection, your aches for perfect love, your aches for perfect safety, your aches for perfect timelessness. But while in this world, those aches are a constant reminder that we're not made for this world. We're made for eternity. And so we live for eternity or what we call the upper story around here. Second Corinthians 4.17, the apostle Paul says, for our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory so that we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I want to talk more about what this means in a devotional this week, but just let it be said. Just kind of let it settle. If you want to be confident facing eternity, recognize your eternal longings and then live for what is unseen, not what is seen. The tragedy, one of the tragedies of our generation is the people, even Christians, get so wrapped up in this age when there's so much more. Second, if you want to be excited about eternity, if you want to have confidence facing death, then educate yourself, understand what to expect when you die. There's something about information that helps us salve our fears. If you're expecting a child, not a bad idea to read a book, what to expect when you're expecting. Going to college, not a bad idea to go to freshman orientation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in fact, I wonder if there are some people actually watching us online right now because They've not come to new life before. They're wondering, what are they doing? They're checking us out for the first time. It's good to get information. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives us a little glimpse into what to expect when we die. First, he says there's going to be separation from the body. Verse 6, we are always confident and know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 8, we are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says this world, our our bodies are a tent, but we are not our tents. We are a soul that is housed by the tent. That's why you can lose your eyes, you can lose your limbs, you can lose your spleen, you can lose half your brain, and you would still be you. Because you are not your brain, you're not your limbs. You're the soul that uses those physical things for time. And although the earthly tent perishes, the soul which is houses will one day be free. That's why Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Paul writes in verse eight, we are away to be away from the body to be at home with the Lord. Two conditions I see in life. In this body, away from the Lord, away from this body, at home with the Lord. I I just don't read of any intermediate state where you go to have your sins purged, by the way. If Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins, your sins are forgiven. 
His grace is sufficient. Romans chapter 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? So we have confidence because of Jesus. When we die, we are removed from the body and the soul is immediately in the presence of the Lord, away from the body at home with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief dying on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. And in the, both of them die. And immediately Lazarus is in heaven beside Abraham. And immediately the rich man is in torment. When the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death, he looked into heaven and said, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Away from the body at home with the Lord. D.P. Schaefer was a preacher of my home church for 22 years. They said that when his wife passed away, she stood up from a chair and said, I'm coming. Passed away. Maybe you've heard those kind of stories too. On the other hand, when my dad was a little boy, he tells of a time when his uncle Jim was dying in the next room. He and his cousin Elaine were playing in the den and dad said we could hear Uncle Jim screaming. Now Uncle Jim had lived a rough life. He had rejected God. And dad said we could just hear him screaming, don't let me go, don't let me go. There's fire there, there's fire there. Don't let me go. Understand the promise of Paul to be at home with the Lord is for people who want their home to be with the Lord not for those who have rejected the Lord all their lives. My dad, I, was asked, I was talking to dad about this this week, about that story. He says, Brett, dad's 86 years old now. He says, Brett, do you know what it does to a little boy to hear your uncle screaming like that in the next room? I was like, no, dad, what's it do to you? He says, it scares the heck out of you. That's what it does. <laughs> I'm sure it did. One reason we face we fear death is because we fear at that moment of death we'll be alone. One of the scary things about, you know, so, much, so many things in life you can go through with other people. Nobody walks through the door of death beside you. You're alone. Unless you're with Jesus. I, 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 um, I love the picture that the Bible gives us of death as sleeping, the sleep of death. I, I've shared with you before, you know what, what it's like when we're kids, we don't wanna fall asleep. I have a five-year-old grandson who doesn't like to go to bed at night sometimes because he's afraid he's gonna miss out on the fun. You wanna stay awake, and so it is in life. But when you're a little child, finally you give in to your exhaustion, you close your eyes, you fall asleep, and the next time you open up your eyes, it's a sunny new morning and it's a new day and you're refreshed and ready to live again. And so I think it is with the sleep of death. I think, I, I wonder if God allows us to sleep right now to give us a, a preparation for dying. We resist it all of our lives, don't we? We're afraid when we die, we're gonna miss out on something, the fun. But then finally, we're exhausted we give in, we close our eyes, 
and we open them and it's a new day and the first face we see is the face of Jesus Christ and we realize we were never alone. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Oh, how I want the Lord to be your good shepherd. So you know you don't go through it alone. And then we receive a glorified body. Verse three, we will not be found naked so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So often, when you imagine your life, your body in eternity, what do you imagine? Sometimes we imagine it's kind of, we're ghosts, you know, like we're thin. We're gonna be on clouds as though that world is less real than this world. I think we're gonna look back on these bodies and realize these bodies are thin. (laughs) These bodies, in a sense, weren't nearly as real as our eternal bodies. I'm gonna talk more about this in a... um, in a devotional this week, suffice it to say, some people um, tell us that we ought to become content with our bodies here. I just want you to know, I've never been content with my body here, and in my age, I'm not getting any more content, but I'm looking forward to the day when I'm gonna have a body, Arnold Schwarzenegger body, I don't know what it's gonna be like. But then we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Must. It's a just thing. All. Nobody escapes. Before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, we don't like to talk about that these days. When was the last time you went to a funeral and they talked about old Uncle Joe? He's standing before the judgment throne of God, you know? Or he's sitting on the news, such and so has died, and now they're being judged in eternity. We're not used to that kind of language, but Jesus said that those who reject him, it'll be a terrible moment. By the way, there are 49 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels alone, that God, Jesus talks about the judgment to, to come. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people that say to God, thy will be done, and people who say to God, my will be done. And for people who say to God, my will be done, I don't want to follow Jesus. I'm going to live my own life. That moment will be more terrible than you can imagine because God will say, okay, I'll give you what you desire. Your will be done. You don't have to be in my presence anymore. And Jesus says there will be thrown into the outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. Maybe I'll talk more about this in a devotional as well, but here's the good news. On the other hand, Christians will not be judged for their sins. For followers of Jesus Christ, your sins have already been judged in him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, For those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. You see, one of the reasons that God gives us baptism is when we experience that, we have a metaphor for what it means that there's a clothing exchange that's gone on at baptism where we take off our dirty, sinful, stained robes and we give them to Jesus. And he takes them on himself when he's crucified. 
and we get his clean, pure, righteous robe. And when we stand before God, when we stand before the judgment throne, God does not see us in our clothes. He He sees us clothed with Christ. And that's why we can anticipate that moment without fear, not because we're confident in ourselves, but because our confidence is in him. Now, I do believe that our, but it says that we'll be judged. Everybody's gonna be judged. Yeah, we'll be judged, I believe, for our deeds. The Bible's, I think the Bible's also clear that there are rewards in heaven, both in hell and in heaven, based on goodness or, 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 or um, stewardship of our lives. How's that work? I'm not quite sure to be honest with you? How can we have the same experience and yet different experiences? I do know one thing. You're not going to be disappointed in heaven. You're not going to play the comparison game. It's like that old story about, by the way, forewarning, corny preacher story. Uh, It's like that story about the preacher and the the lawyer that die and go to heaven, and the preacher gets this measly apartment, hardly furnished at all, the lawyer, on the other hand, gets this huge mansion with a huge yard and an 18-hole golf course, and it's amazing. And the lawyer runs into God and he says, God, I think there's been a mix-up. I mean, here's this preacher who's done so much for you all of his life, and I'm a lawyer. I just got, I, just, I get all this. It's got to be a mix-up. God says, oh, no, no, there's no mix-up. We have lots of preachers here. You're the first lawyer. I don't think it's going to be like that when we're going to get to heaven like, hey, why does Bob have a better place than I do? I think it's like this. You want to understand anything spiritual? What do you need to understand? Baseball. Always remember that. Great principle of life. If you go to a baseball game, who appreciates the baseball game most? That person who has never been to a baseball game, has never heard about baseball before, and they're experiencing it for the first time? Or the person who's played baseball since they were eight years old and they have sacrificed for baseball, they have disciplined with baseball, they have read baseball, they have you know, coached baseball. I mean, they have, they have been, who's gonna have a deeper experience? The person who's never experienced baseball or the spiritual person? You don't appreciate that one very much, do you? You see the, kind of the parallel there. It's the person who's experienced. I think that's how it is. In, I, I, think, I think that may be a hint of what it will be like in heaven. Who's the person who's going to have the deepest experience in heaven? Why are you here right now? If you're saved, why doesn't God just take you into heaven? Because he deepens the relationship with us. And I think somebody like the Apostle Paul or Peter or or people who are following Jesus in Iraq or sharing Jesus with people in Lebanon and facing uh, execution, I think they're going to have a deeper experience of God because of developing a deeper relationship, deeper trust, deeper faith in this life than those who are kind of softies like me and have been able to, to not have to depend so much. Paul says in verse nine, therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Departure from the body, presence of the Lord, resurrected body, judgment before Christ, and then eternal reward. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I love C.S. Lewis' description of heaven. He says, 
He says, heaven is that place that when you get there, you're going to feel like it was made just for you. You're going to walk into, the, into heaven, and you're not going to think, oh, what a great place for all of us. You're going to think, you made this just personally for This is perfect for me. The other thing I like about heaven and our reward, you know how the first day is always the best? I like the first bite of the steak is always the best. Every day in heaven is the first day in heaven. Joys never get old. Leads us to our next principle, which is eagerly anticipate your reward in heaven. Uncertainty has a way of killing enthusiasm. If you're uncertain about your reward in heaven, it's hard to be enthusiastic. Elon Musk said, I think we cease to exist when we die. I I hope I'm wrong, but most likely I think you're just gone. Kind of hard to be enthusiastic if, if that's the case for you. We hear the Apostle Paul's anticipation of eternity, do we not? Verse 2, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4, we don't want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. I hear from people, even just this morning, who's heard from somebody whose brother is dying of cancer in the last moments how comforting to know there's going to come a moment soon when mortality will be swallowed up by life verse 5 Paul says now one the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God verse 8 we are confident and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord I love that old funeral poem that says the view of heaven that I sing is not of angels on the wing white robed with harps golden crowns I vision rather little towns with smogless skies and rivers clear not an airplane you can hear no growing old with weakened sight no dentures slipping when you bite that's an old poem by the way no bombs no guns no courts no jails where all succeed and no one fails No strikes, no layoffs, full employment, and everybody with job enjoyment. All tell the truth, state only facts, no wars, no debt, no income tax. According to this dream of mine in heaven, no one stands in line. There are only smiling faces and lots and lots of parking places. Having a picture of heaven helps us increase our anticipation. I would share with you three pictures that the Bible gives us. The one is a picture of perfection. Heaven is a perfect place, perfect love, perfect joy because God is perfect. It is, it is God completely dominating. No sin will enter heaven. God will wipe away every tear. Every wound will be healed. Johnny Erickson, tada, when she was 17 years old in a diving accident, ended up paralyzed, arms and legs, has been in a wheelchair all of her life. She was asked, what do you look forward to when you go to heaven? She said, well, people, you, you look at me in my wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years. Most people would think you're looking forward to your new body. And yes, that's one of those fringe benefits, but I'm looking forward to a new heart, a heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases. 
a heart free of fudging the truth, a heart free of hogging the spotlight, believing your own press releases, a heart free of not believing the best of others, a heart free of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. Another word that helps us understand heaven is the word home. Jesus said, in my Father's house, I go to prepare a place for you. Home is a place for family. Home is a place where we are all family. All divisions are removed. Aren't you tired of the divisions of this world? In heaven, there'll be no racial divisions, no gender divisions, no political divisions, no economic divisions, no hurt divisions, no cultural divisions. In heaven, the Bible says that we'll be seated around a table at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we'll all be family there. One of the closest pictures of heaven that I can imagine is the coming together of our neighborhood back home when I was growing up at my grandparents' place at the lake. Generations of families lived in that neighborhood, and, um, and, but everybody would seem to come home for Fourth of July week. It was this unique experience of coming home, not just our family, but people from California and Texas and New York and Tennessee and Virginia and Florida. The whole neighborhood basically would come home and people who've known each other since they were kids would get stuck and, and just kind of catch up with each other. It was just, it would be such a rich time, but it was always tempered by the reality that we knew within a few days we'd all be packing up again and going our separate ways. I like to imagine heaven is that place where there's no more separation where we're together with family and there's no more goodbyes. Ultimately, our picture of heaven is presence of Christ, however. I've been reading the Psalms devotionally this year, really impressed by how often the psalmist writes of the presence of God, wanting to live in the presence of God right now. In your presence is fullness of life. Come, let, let us come before him in his presence with thanksgiving. Don't cast me from your presence. Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Psalm 27 verse four is a wonderful picture of the presence of God. I have one thing that I ask of the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Heaven is not just a place of perfection because of some impersonal thing. It is a place of perfection because of the presence of God. It is why we desire to live in the presence of God today. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life begins right now as you live in the presence of Jesus Christ, as we live in the presence of God. Today is a foretaste of heaven because the more we live in his presence now the more we hunger for his presence in the future 
Again, it was C.S. Lewis who said, for some people, this is the closest thing to hell they'll ever experience because we experience the presence of God here, but then we'll experience the perfect presence of God in eternity. But he also said, for some people, this is the closest thing to heaven they'll ever experience because even the non-Christian can experience the presence of God, some in this world, but in eternity, there'll be complete separation. So we can be confident, finally, because of Jesus Christ. Verse one, Paul says, for I know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal dwelling in the heavens. How do we know? Verse five, he says, God has given us the spirit as a down payment. We're going on vacation this summer. My wife has made a reservation for a home on a lake. She's made a down payment. We've received a receipt. We know that we're going to show up there and they're going to have a house ready for us because we've made the down payment. The Bible says that Jesus paid the price for you to get into heaven, to have a home. And now the Holy Spirit is your deposit guaranteeing that you have a place in heaven. How do you know you have a place in heaven? Because you see the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. You experience the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. You know the presence of God in your life. Why do you come to worship? It's if when you come to worship, you are, you are experiencing God's presence, you are enjoying God's presence, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you're ready to get out of here as soon as possible, that's evidence that God's presence really maybe doesn't mean as much to you as your own agenda. I don't, I don't know, maybe it could be something else. Do you see the Holy Spirit in work in your life, answering your prayers, leading you, empowering you to do immeasurably more than all you can ever ask or imagine? Do you look at your life and say, I never could have experienced, I never could have done that except the Holy Spirit did that in my life. Do you share your faith and experience the Holy Spirit giving you words to say, experiencing God's fruitfulness through your life? Isn't that what Jesus said? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Why? Just because you have to? Just because it's the right thing to do? Just because God wants you to be his soldier? No, what's Jesus say? And I will be with you always to the end of this age. Jesus wants us to share him with others so that we can experience his presence in our life as he gives us the words to say and encouragement and fruitfulness. You see God providing for you financially because you're laying up treasures in heaven and you find when you trust God, he shows himself trustworthy. He does more through your finances than you could have ever done for yourself. That's presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. But if you never share your faith, if you never act in faith, if you completely trust in your finances for yourself, you're always gonna wonder, is the Holy Spirit in my life or am I just living this life on my own? The Apostle Paul would say in verse seven, so we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we're confident we prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Perhaps there are some who lack confidence in eternal life that you go to heaven when you die in this place right now. 
Corey Ten Boom said, just, you know, a mouse in a cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. <laughs> just because you come to church doesn't make you a Christian. In Acts chapter 16, a wicked Philippian jailer saw God do miraculous things through Paul and Silas, and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer could not have been more clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus Christ's grace is sufficient for you. He is your savior. Depend on him for your salvation. And what did the jailer do? That very hour of the night, he didn't wait for a day, he didn't wait for a week, he didn't wait for two weeks or a month, he said, it's in that very hour of the night, he exchanged his dirty robes for the clean robes. of He and all who believed in his household were baptized. Perhaps you're not confident because although you have expressed you believe, you've not followed it up with the action of obedience to be united with Christ in the waters of baptism. Today, be baptized. You have questions, we have people in the back who would love to help you, but you can be baptized. You need to be baptized. Give your life to Christ today. Perhaps you aren't confident though because you're trying to do the impossible. You're trying to live for eternity and you're trying to live for this age at the same time. You're trying to play it down the middle. You love this world. You want to live for this world. You want to fit into this world. You're invested in this world. Your priorities are in this world and you're saying, I want to live for eternity. And this is the day you say, no more. <laughs> All to Jesus I surrender. My whole heart, Lord, is yours. Or as the Apostle Paul says, whether we are at home or away, we make it our single aim to be pleasing to him. And when you do that, then you'll also be able to say with Paul, we are confident to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that everybody that is in this place right now will understand, will have the confidence and the comfort of knowing what it is to wear the robes of Christ, what it is to experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit answering our prayers and leading us moment by moment. And we see, oh, look at the deposit that God has given us, reminding us that the debt has been paid and heaven is our home. God, we, everyone's in a different place right now. Help us each to take that next step with you so we can face this life and we can face the next with confidence in Christ through whom we pray, amen.